Book Three, Chapter Six, Part Two, of On the Education of an Orator. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. On the Education of an Orator by Quintilian, translated by H. E. Butler. Book Three, Chapter Six, Part Two. Some writers have held that there are five bases: the conjectural definitive, qualitative, quantitative, and relative. Theodorus also, as I have said, adopts the same number of general heads, whether a thing is, what it is, of what kind it is, how great it is, and to what it refers. The last he considers to be chiefly concerned with comparison, since better and worse, greater and less, are meaningless terms, unless referred to some standard. But questions of relation, as I have already pointed out, enter also into translative questions, that is, questions of competence, since in cases such as, has this man a right to bring an action, or is it fitting that he should do such and such a thing, or against this man, or at this time, or in this manner, for all these questions must be referred to a certain standard. Others hold that there are six bases, conjecture, or genesis, quality, particularity, or idiotes, by which word they mean definition, quantity, or axia, comparison, and competence, for which a new term has been found in metastasis. I call it new when applied to a basis, for Hermagoras employs it to describe a species of juridical question. Others think that there are seven, while refusing to recognize competence, quantity, or comparison, in place of which they substitute four legal bases, completing the seven by the addition of those three which they call rational. Others, again, make eight by the addition of competence to the above-mentioned seven. Some, on the other hand, have introduced a fresh method of division, reserving the name of basis for the rational, and giving the name of questions to the legal, as I mentioned above, since in the former the problem is concerned with facts, in the latter with the letter of the law. Some, on the contrary, reverse this nomenclature, calling the legal questions basis and the rational grounds questions. But others have thought that there are only three rational bases covered by the questions whether a thing is, what it is, and of what kind it is. Hermagoras is alone in thinking that there are four, namely conjecture, particularity, competence, and quality. To the latter he appends the phrase katasimbebekos, according to its accidents. Illustrating his meaning, by putting a case where it is inquired whether a man happened to be good or bad. He then subdivides quality into four species. First, that which is concerned with things to be sought or avoided, which belongs to deliberative oratory. Secondly, those concerned with things in general, without reference to persons, and may be illustrated by questions such as whether he is free who is claimed as a slave and waiting the trial of his case, whether riches beget insolence, and whether a thing is just or good. Lastly, 
there is the juridical species, under which practically the same questions arise, but in relation to certain definite persons, as, for instance, when it is asked whether that particular man has done well or ill. I am aware that another explanation is given by Cicero in the first book of his Rhetorica, of the species known as practical, where he says that it is the department under which we consider what is right according to civil usage and equity. This department is regarded by us as the personal sphere of the lawyer. But I have already mentioned what his opinion was about this particular word. The rhetorica are simply a collection of school notes on rhetoric which he worked up into this treatise while quite a young man. Such faults as they possess are due to his instructor. In the present instance he may have been influenced by the fact that the first examples given by Hermagoras of this species are drawn from legal questions, or by the fact that the Greeks call interpreters of the law pragmatikoi. But for these early efforts, Cicero substituted his splendid de oratore, and therefore cannot be blamed for giving false instruction. I will now return to Hermagoras. He was the first rhetorician to teach that there was a basis concerned with competence, although the elements of this doctrine are found in Aristotle, without, however, any mention of the name. The legal questions were, according to Hermagoras, of five kinds. First, the letter of the law and its intention. The names which he gives to these are katacheton and hypexairesis, that is to say, the letter of the law and the exceptions thereto. The first of these classes is found in all writers, but the term exception is less in use. The number is completed by the ratiocinative basis, and those dealing with ambiguity and contradictory laws. Albusius adopts this classification, but eliminates competence, including it under the juridical basis. Further, he holds that in legal questions there is no ratiocinative basis. I know that those who are prepared to read ancient writers on rhetoric more carefully than I have will be able to discover yet more on this subject, but I fear that I may have been too lengthy even in saying what I have said. I must admit that I am now inclined to take a different view from that which I once held. It would perhaps be safer for my reputation if I were to make no modification in views which I not only held for so many years, but of which I expressed my open approbation. But I cannot bear to be thought guilty of concealment of the truth, as regards any portion of my views, more especially in a work designed for the profit of young men of sound disposition. For Hippocrates, the great physician, in my opinion, took the most honorable course in acknowledging some of his errors to prevent those who came after from being led astray, while Cicero had no hesitation about condemning some of his earlier works in books which he published later. I refer to his condemnation of his Lucullus and Catullus in the books of rhetoric which I have already mentioned. Indeed, we should have no justification for protracting our studies if we were forbidden to improve upon our original views. Still, 
none of my past teaching was superfluous, for the views which I am now going to produce will be found to be based on the same principles, and consequently no one need be sorry to have attended my lectures, since all that I am now attempting to do is to collect and rearrange my original views, so that they may be somewhat more instructive. But I wish to satisfy everybody, and not to lay myself open to the accusation that I have allowed a long time to elapse between the formation and publication of my views. I used to follow the majority of authorities in adhering to three rational bases, the conjectural, qualitative, and definitive, and to one legal basis. These were my general bases. The legal basis I divided into five species, dealing with the letter of the law and intention, contradictory laws, the syllogism, ambiguity, and competence. It is now clear to me that the fourth of the general basis may be removed, since the original division which I made into rational and legal basis is sufficient. The fourth, therefore, will not be a basis, but a kind of question. If it were not, it would form one of the rational bases. Further, I have removed competence from those which I called species, for I often asserted, as all who have attended my lectures will remember, and even those discourses which were published against my will, included the statement that the basis concerned with competence hardly ever occurs in any dispute under such circumstances that it cannot more correctly be given some other name, and that consequently some rhetoricians exclude it from their list of bases. I am, however, well aware that the point of competence is raised in many cases, since in practically every case in which a party is said to have been ruled out of court through some error of form, questions such as the following arise, whether it was lawful for this person to bring an action, or to bring it against some particular person, or under a given law, or in such a court, or at such a time, and so on. But the question of competence as regards persons, times, legal actions, and the rest, originates in some pre-existent cause. The question turns, therefore, not on competence itself, but on the cause with which the point of competence originates. You ought to demand the return of a deposit, not before the praetor, but before the consuls, as the sum is too large to come under the praetor's jurisdiction. The question then arises whether the sum is too large, and the dispute is one of fact. You have no right to bring an action against me, as it is impossible for you to have been appointed to represent the actual plaintiff. It then has to be decided whether he could have been so appointed. You ought not to have proceeded by interdict, but to have put in a plea for possession. The point in doubt is whether the interdict is legal. All these points fall under the head of legal questions. For do not even those special pleas, in which questions of competence make themselves most evident, give rise to the same species of question as those laws under which the action is brought, so that the inquiry is really concerned with the name of a given act, with the letter of the law in its meaning, or with something that requires to be settled by argument. The basis originates from the question, and in cases of competence, 
it is not the question concerning which the advocate argues that is involved, but the question on account of which he argues. An example will make this clearer. You have killed a man. I did not kill him. The question is whether he has killed him. The basis is the conjectural. But the following case is very different. I have the right to bring this action. You have not the right. The question is whether he has the right, and it is from this that we derive the basis. For whether he is allowed the right or not depends on the event, not on the cause itself, and on the decision of the judge, not on that on account of which he gives such a decision. The following is a similar example. You ought to be punished. I ought not. The judge will decide whether he should be punished, but it is not with this that the question or the basis is concerned. Where, then, does the question lie? You ought to be punished, for you have killed a man. I did not kill him. The question is whether he killed him. I ought to receive some honor. You ought not. Does this involve a basis? I think not. I ought to receive some honor for killing a tyrant. You did not kill him. Here there is a question and a basis as well. So, too, you are not entitled to bring this action. I have. Involves no basis. Where, then, is it to be found? You have no right to bring this action, because you have been deprived of civil rights. In this case, the question is whether he has been so deprived, or whether loss of civil rights debars a person from bringing an action. Here, on the other hand, we find both questions and bases. It is therefore to kinds of causes, not to bases, that the term competence applies. Other kinds of cause are the comparative and the recriminatory. But, it is urged, the case I have a right, you have not, is similar to, you have killed a man, I was justified in so doing. I do not deny it, but this does not make it a basis, for these statements are not propositions until the reasons for them are added. If they were propositions as they stand, the case could not proceed. Horatius has committed a crime, for he has killed his sister. He has not committed a crime, since it was his duty to kill her for mourning the death of an enemy. The question is whether this was a justifiable reason, and the basis is one of quality so too as regards competence. You have no right to disinherit, since a person who has been deprived of civil rights is not allowed to take legal action. I have the right, since disinheriting is not a legal action. The question here is, what is legal action? And we shall arrive at the conclusion that the son's disinheritance is unlawful by use of the syllogism. The case will be similar with all the rational and legal bases. I am aware that there have been some who placed competence among rational bases, using as illustrations cases such as I killed a man under orders from my general. I gave the votive offerings in a temple to a tyrant under compulsion. I deserted owing to the fact that storms or floods or ill health prevented me from rejoining. That is to say, it was not due to me, but some external cause. From these writers I differ even more widely, for it is not the nature of the legal action itself which is involved in the question of competence, 
but the cause of the act, and this is the case in almost every defense. Finally, he who adopts this line of defense does not thereby abandon the qualitative basis, for he states that he himself is free from blame, so that we really should differentiate between two kinds of quality, one of which comes into play when both the accused persons and his act are defended, and the other when the accused person alone is defended. We must, therefore, accept the view of the authorities followed by Cicero, to the effect that there are three things on which enquiry is made in every case. We ask whether a thing is, what it is, and of what kind it is. Nature itself imposes this upon us. For first of all, there must be some subject for the question, since we cannot possibly determine what a thing is, or of what kind it is, until we have first ascertained whether it is, and therefore the first question raised is whether it is. But even when it is clear that a thing is, it is not immediately obvious what it is. And when we have decided what it is, there remains the question of its quality. These three points, one ascertained, there is no further question to ask. These heads cover both definite and indefinite questions, for no legal problem can be settled save by the aid of definition, quality, and conjecture. Those, however, who are engaged in instructing the ignorant will find it useful at first to adopt a slightly less rigid method. The road will not be absolutely straight to begin with, but it will be more open and will provide easier going. I would have them, therefore, learn above all things that there are four different methods which may be employed in every case, and he who is going to plead should study them as first essentials. For, to begin with the defendant, far the strongest method of self-defense is, if possible, to deny the charge. The second best is when it is possible to reply that the particular act with which you are charged was never committed. The third and most honorable is to maintain that the act was justifiable. If none of these lines of defense are feasible, there remains the last and only hope of safety. If it is impossible either to deny the charge or justify the account, we must evade the charge with the aid of some point of law, making it appear that the action has been brought against us illegally. Hence arise the questions of legal action or competence. For there are some things which, although not laudable in themselves, are yet permitted by law. Witness the passage in the Twelve Tables, authorizing creditors to divide up a debtor's body among themselves, a law which is repudiated by public custom. There are also certain things which, although equitable, are prohibited by law. Witness the restrictions placed on testamentary disposition. The accuser, likewise, has four things which he must keep in mind. He must prove that something was done, that a particular act was done, that it was wrongly done, and that he brings his charge according to law. Thus every cause will turn on the same sorts of questions, though the parts of plaintiff and defendant will sometimes be interchanged. For instance, in the case of a claim for a reward, it will be the plaintiff's task 
to show that what was done was right. These four schemes or forms of action, which I then called general basis, fall into two classes, as I have shown, namely the rational and the legal. Rational is the simpler, as it involves nothing more than the consideration of the nature of things. In this connection, therefore, a mere mention of conjecture, definition, and quality will suffice. Legal questions necessarily have a larger number of species, since there are many laws in a variety of forms. In the case of one law, we rely on the letter, in others on the spirit. Some laws we force to serve our turn, when we can find no law to support our case. Others we compare with one another, and on others we put some novel interpretation. Thus, from these three bases, we get three resemblances of bases, sometimes simple, sometimes complex, but all having a character of their own, as, for instance, when questions of the letter of the law and its intention are involved, for these clearly come under conjecture or quality, or again, where the syllogism is involved, for this is specially connected with quality, or whether contradictory laws are involved, for these are on the same footing as the letter of the law and intention, or yet again, in cases of ambiguity, which is always resolved by conjecture. Definition also belongs to both classes of questions, namely, those concerned with the consideration of facts, and those concerned with the letter of the law. All these questions, although they come under the three bases, yet since, as I have mentioned, they have certain characteristic features of their own, require to be pointed out to learners, and we must allow them to be called legal bases or questions or minor heads, as long as it is clearly understood that none of them involve any other questions than the three I have mentioned. As regards questions of quantity, number, relation, and, as some have thought, comparison, the case is different. For these have no connection with the complexities of the law, but are concerned with reason only. Consequently, they must always be regarded as coming under conjecture or quality, as, for instance, when we ask with what purpose, or at what time or place, something was done. But I will speak of individual questions when I come to handle the rules for division. This much is agreed to by all writers, that one cause possesses one basis, but that, as regards secondary questions related to the main issue of the trial, there may frequently be a number in one single cause. I also think there is, at times, some doubt as to which basis should be adopted, when many different lines of defense are brought to meet a single charge. And, just as in regard to the complexion to be given to the statement of the facts of the case, that complexion is said to be the best which the speaker can best maintain. So, in the present connection, I may say that the best basis to choose is that which will permit the orator to develop a maximum of force. It is for this reason that we find Cicero and Brutus taking up different lines in defense of Milo. Cicero says that Claudius was justifiably killed because he sought to waylay Milo, but that Milo had not designed to kill him, while Brutus, 
who wrote his speech merely as a rhetorical exercise, also exults that Milo has killed a bad citizen. In complicated causes, however, two or three bases may be found, or different bases. For instance, a man may plead that he did not do one thing, and that he was justified in doing another. Or, to take another similar class of case, a man may deny two of the charges. The same thing occurs when there is a question about something which is claimed by a number of persons, who may, all of them, rely on the same kind of plea, for instance, on the right of the next of kin, or may put in different claims, one urging that the property was left him by will, another that he is next of kin. Now, whenever a different defense has to be made against different claimants, there must be different bases, as, for example, the well-known controversial theme. Wills that are made in accordance with law shall be valid. When parents die, intestate, their children shall be the heirs. A disinherited son shall receive none of his father's property. A bastard, if born before a legitimate son, shall be treated as legitimate, but if born after a legitimate son, shall be treated merely as a citizen. It shall be lawful to give a son in adoption. Every son given in adoption shall have the right to re-enter his own family if his natural father has died childless. A father of two legitimate sons gave one in adoption, disinherited the other, and acknowledged the bastard, who was born to him later. Finally, after making the disinherited son his heir, he died. All three sons lay claim to the property. Notus is the Greek word for a bastard. Latin, as Cato emphasized in one of his speeches, has no word of its own, and therefore borrows the foreign term. But I am straying from the point. The son who was made heir by the will finds his way barred by the law. A disinherited son shall receive none of his father's property. The basis is one resting on the letter of the law and intention, and the problem is whether he can inherit by any means at all. Can he do so in accordance with the intention of his father, or in virtue of the fact that he was made heir by the will? The problem confronting the bastard is twofold, since he was born after the two legitimate sons, and was not born before a legitimate son. The first problem involves a syllogism. Are those sons who have been cast out from their own family to be regarded as though they had never been born? The second is concerned with the letter of the law and intention, for it is admitted that he was not born before any legitimate son, but he will defend his claim by appealing to the intention of the law, which he will maintain to imply that the bastard, born when there was no legitimate son in the family, should rank as legitimate. He will dismiss the letter of the law, pointing out that in any case the position of a bastard is not prejudiced by the fact that no legitimate son was born after him, and arguing as follows. Suppose that the only son is a bastard, what will his position be? Merely that of a citizen? And yet he was not born after any legitimate son. Or will he rank as a son in all respects? But he was not born before the legitimate sons. As it is impossible to stand by the letter of the law, we must stand by its intentions. It need disturb no one that one law should originate two bases, 
the law is twofold, and therefore has the force of two laws. To the son who desires to re-enter the family, the disinherited's first reply is, Even though you are allowed to re-enter the family, I am still the heir. The basis will be the same as in the claim put forward by the disinherited son, since the question at issue is whether a disinherited son can inherit. But the disinherited and the bastard will object. You cannot re-enter the family, for our father did not die childless. But in this connection, each will rely on his own particular question. For the disinherited son will say that even a disinherited man does not cease to be a son, and will derive an argument from that very law which denies his claim to the inheritance, namely, that it was unnecessary for a disinherited son to be excluded from possession of his father's property if he had ceased to be one of the family. But now, since in virtue of his rights as son, he would have been his father's heir if he had died intestate, the law is brought to bar his claim. And yet, the law does not deprive him of his position as son, but only of his position as heir. Here the basis is definitive as turning on the definition of a son. Again the bastard, in his turn, will urge that his father did not die childless, employing the same arguments that he had used in putting forward his claim that he ranked as a son. Unless, indeed, he too has recourse to definition, and raises the question whether he said bastards are not sons. Thus, in one case, we shall have either two special legal bases, namely, the letter of the law and intention, with the syllogism and also definition, or those three which are really the only basis strictly so-called, conjecture as regards the letter of the law and intention, quality in the syllogism, and definition which needs no explanation. Further, every kind of case will contain a cause, a point for the decision of the judge, and a central argument. For nothing can be said which does not contain a reason, something to which the decision of the judge is directed, and finally, something which, more than aught else, contains the substance of the matter at issue. But, as these vary in different cases, and are as a rule explained by writers on judicial causes, I will postpone them to the appropriate portion of my work. For the present, I shall follow the order which I prescribe by my division of causes into three classes. End of Book 3, Chapter 6